Hi, this is a quick announcement. If you are a fan of the actual plays that have been on Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks, you may not know that we've actually moved them, or at least we've, we'll be doing all new episodes, on a new podcast called Grizzly Peaks Radio. So please go and check it out. There'll be a link in the show notes. Make a move, adventures calling. Forest fires, cougars falling. Take a chance and roll the dice one day. If you're a DM player, find you. Millennials can join this quest too. Expedition, we're gonna find a way. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Eve. Recording this on Christmas Eve. I I love Christmas Eve. Don't know why. I think I like it even more than Christmas Day. I think it's a sort of nostalgia for my childhood anticipation of Christmas morning. But it's a bunch of other things as well. You know, when I was a young man, my first first years of being in work, Christmas Eve, unlike in the US, apparently Christmas Eve is, is a whole day is a holiday here, apparently. But in, in the UK, um, usually it's kind of discretionary on the company if they're going to give you half a day off, and they usually do. So basically, um, everyone gets half a day off, which of course means, being British, everyone just goes down the pub and gets absolutely hammered. So there's some nice nostalgic memories of that as well. Uh, as a young Turk, um, full of vim and vigor, full of spit and vinegar, full of spunk, <laughs> um, going down with the with a bunch of equally young and stupid workmates to get to get hammered on, on Christmas Eve. There's, there's something nice about that. And then of course you get on the tube and try not to vomit on the way back. I did once. Oof. Not good in a packed tube. Some some incredibly kind lady sitting next to me, and I don't understand why. I, I almost can't believe. Instead of just moving away as any normal, well, sensible person, well, this, this good Samaritan, she just patted my head back and said, there, there, and, and tried to make me feel a bit better. I would not do that to some stranger puking on a tube next to me. Anyway. So yeah, Christmas. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. I'm Jewish, but I'm only Jew-ish, as my mother always likes to joke. Um, so we celebrate, we've always celebrated Christmas. We never celebrated Hanukkah, um, being, well, secular Jews, really, I suppose. Atheists, probably. Um, <clears throat> but in Britain, everyone celebrates Christmas, or at least they did, I suppose. I, I guess things are a little bit different these days with various things that I may or may not approve of but um but yeah um so we always celebrated christmas this year i actually bought um hanukkah candles and a menorah for the first time ever i have no idea what the ritual is around it but um but amelia loved lighting a menorah candle uh, a hanukkah candle on a menorah at their school holiday um, parade thing, uh, sort of uh, winter winter wonderland. They they put this thing together. 
Um, so I thought, well, yeah, well, she loves lighting candles. Let's let's do it. It's kind of a fun thing to do. Um, she now knows that she is sort of Jewish, sort of half Jewish, not really. So so uh, Jewishness is is imparted by the mother, not by the father. My wife isn't Jewish. I am, which technically means Amelia isn't Jewish at all. But I like to think she's half Jewish, and she likes to think she's half Jewish too. And she declares very clearly that it's the top half that's Jewish. <laughs> she's a funny one. So, um, fuck me. Where, where am I going with this? Um, this is an Eldritch Organ episode, but but um, at the moment I've got a. Uh, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. This has nothing to do with Eldritch Organ. I made, I made a mistake for Christmas. Uh, given that there's only three of us, I normally do a very big Christmas dinner, and we normally have lots and lots of people round. Um, I'm normally cooking for like anywhere between 10 and 15 people because um, I love I love cooking and I love cooking Christmas dinners and and it's just a tradition that we've had for a long time and of course this year no um, so I thought oh, I know I'll be smart no turkey you can't possibly handle a turkey between three people and you know the amount of cold turkey you're going to be going through it's just not doesn't bear thinking about so I thought I'd be clever I'll buy a goose fuck me the goose is twelve pounds. Twelve pounds of solid goose sitting there in my fridge, leering at me, saying, "Go on, you fucker, try eating this on Christmas Day." So, <laughs> I mean, you can actually get turkeys that weigh less than twelve pounds. Not not often, but you can some sometimes get a ten pound turkey. So I could have saved all that pain, and um, I'm not gonna. I mean, they're ridiculously expensive as well compared to a turkey. And they're tricky to cook. And they're super fatty. And the truth is, probably, they're probably not as nice either. I've only eaten goose once. It wasn't that great. I I, I, I believe in myself. I have faith that I'll be able to do a better job. Um, that, you know, I've got a good Nigel Slater recipe. He's, he's my go-to. He always has been. Um, so I'll be trying to do my best with it. Let's see. Anyway, no one wants to hear about that. Everyone wants to hear about the organ of the organ of the arcane, the eldritch organ. So, um, this episode is mainly going to be given over to two very clever people who design games, um, and neither of them is me. So, um, one of them is going to be Barney. Barney left a very long and detailed message about refining the, the, the design of, of this improvisational Cthulhu game and um, and then I get a, a, a really nice couple of calls from Goblin's henchman um, he of um, the Hexflower fame I'm not going to explain what Hexflower is here, it's too too much to explain in this in this episode check out uh, Goblin's Henchman's podcast he he does talk a lot about Hexflowers and he has a blog and it's a very cool thing but he also has some ideas around design for for improvisational uh, uh, mythos or mysteries I think he's even designed a Hexflower type approach for it look in simple terms a Hexflower is a visualization of, of, of a sort of random random events that kind of you you, you that get linked together now Typically, it's done as a as a as a map, as a wilderness exploration, a hex, a hex crawl. Um, but equally, it can be done, I guess, for a story as well. You know, there's no reason why it can't be. So um, he talks about that a bit, and um, and yeah, um, 
most of it will be over to them. But there, there's been interesting, interesting kind of side development that has been occupying my mind of late. Um, my very dear friend, Daniel Norton of Bandits Keep podcast, go and check out Bandits Keep podcast, um, but specifically go and check out a one of his m- more recent YouTube videos. Um, I, I think it's the second most recent one around, um, and I can't remember what the title is, but it's basically about how D&D modules or, or RPG modules suck because they force you down certain paths. And the majority of it, I think, was inspired by the first session of a game that I just ran for him. Um, at one point, he exclaimed, not under his breath, lame. <laughs> now, I have since spoken <laughs> at length to Daniel. He didn't say I was being lame. I, his reaction was to the module, to the scenario being lame. And it's... um. It's fascinating, really, his, his, his whole digression on that. And it really has made me think about some of the problems, really, with pre-written stories, with pre-written narratives, pre-written scenarios. I don't disagree with him, but, but I love running them. So I need to grapple with this if I'm going to be honest with myself. Um, if I genuinely do agree with his thesis that they are crap because they force you to make the characters do certain things in order to move the narrative forward, this is very much, very much a commentary, a critique, a even a rationale for doing improvisational gaming. And so it really gets to the heart of why we're doing Eldritch Organ and and all of these conversations I've been having with Barney over over the last year. So um, I will track down the name of this episode in a minute and tell you. And then I will, I guess, sort of try to not defend myself, but perhaps understand why I do what I do. So it's um, an episode, I think, from the 23rd or possibly the 22nd, depending on how hours and times work. But uh, Daniel's Bandits Keep episode is called DMs Trust Your Players, which now feels even more more of a <laughs> slap across, slap on the wrist to me. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll put forward the setup. So like all Call of Cthulhu adventures and, and modules, there's this tricky thing at the beginning where and Barney talks about this quite a lot in the in the message coming up where you're trying to walk this tightrope between somehow this the fear the the um, unknowingness the, the the willingness of of the investigators to wander into life ending potential threat and and the knowingness and so every Call of Cthulhu scenario has this awkward bit at the beginning where you have to get the investigators interested in, in the story, in, in the narrative. And as Daniel has said to me personally, it's like, you don't have to make us do that. You, you know, we're there to play the game. Just trust trust your group, your players that they're going to do it. And, and yeah, I should, I should. But it seems like every, you know, for, for, is it 40 years? Yeah, 40 years of um, Call of Cthulhu. Um, bitter experience of the writers have led them to believe or to think that they need to 
hook the players, hook the players' characters in to get them to buy into it. That you can't just guarantee that, which is kind of ridiculous, really, because otherwise, why are you playing the game? And this is probably a hangover from all of those, all of those elements. Now, in this particular story, the first thing is you have to get all the players to this seedy Berlin nightclub to watch a cabaret of the of Anita Berber, the notorious nude dancer of Weimar Berlin in 1926. Um, so that is a little, you know, little bit of um, arm twisting that needs to happen there. You, the, the, one of the characters has to meet an old friend who's invited them to the cabaret, and then, of course, you have to figure out how he knows or she knows all the other characters. Um, it's a little bit more complicated and knotty than you meet in a tavern. You know, you meet in a tavern is given a really hard time, but it's a very quick shorthand for saying you're all together at the beginning. That's all it is. Now, in a kind of pseudo-realistic setting, the meeting in a tavern doesn't make any sense. Of course it doesn't. Um, how many times have you met five strangers in a pub one night and ended up becoming fast friends and going on a, on a long long journeys around the world with them? It doesn't happen that often. So, so there's already that problem to overcome. So that's a bit of an twist in the beginning. I, I did the classic thing. I, I, one of them was, was actually designed as a character who, who would know this, this NPC. Uh, he plays Max Nemetz, the um, ship's captain in the film Nosferatu from 1922. The person they're going to this cabaret with is Albin Grau, who is the producer and um, creative mind behind Nosferatu. So that all made sense. Uh, Max Nemetz is hit on hard times. He's no longer able to get acting jobs. He's working as a stuntman and a stagehand. So that all made sense. Then we had to kind of wiggle around a bit and figure out how he knows... Um, Katorian, the Armenian gangster who runs Club Sophia or Bar Sophia, Cafe Sophia, how he knows um, Eckhart Schild, the pulp fiction author, how he knows Safina Russo, the street urchin um, artist living rough on the streets of Berlin, how he also knows um, uh, Anna Marie Kuhl, um, a, a young emigre from Paris. Um, with a German name, let's not get too wrapped up in that. A uh, young emigre from Paris working her way up in the cabaret scene. Um, so, yeah, that was a little bit of a kind of wiggle, but that was okay. I think everything was okay up until the point where the cabaret started. So there's this long narrative piece, which I think the players enjoyed. I'm not sure. I think they did. Um, it's very well written. It's very weird. It's very intense. I had uh, the right music. Like it, it, it actually says now, you know, she, she comes out and dances to Morphium, this classical music piece, this avant-garde classical music piece. I found it. I played it. All nicely done. Beautiful images. But then at the end of the third act, um, or during the third act, this spell is cast effectively. And everyone has to make a power roll, but not just an ordinary power roll. This has to be an extreme power roll, and if they were wearing one of the masks handed out at the beginning to guard people's modesty during this outrageous cabaret show, they had a penalty dice. Okay, so I think I did a quick back, back of the napkin calculation. If you had 90 power, which means you have unbelievably high power, it's out of 100, um, most characters do not have anywhere near 90 power, um, if you had 90 power and you were wearing a mask, um, you had a 1 in 10 chance of saving it. 
If you had normal power, sort of regular power, around 50 or 60, you had about a 3% chance. So naturally, everyone fell under the spell. And then the way it's it plays out is that this debauchery happens, This basically this drug-fueled, magic-fueled orgy, which I offered the players the, 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 the opportunity to draw a veil over it. I don't think anyone, no one had a problem with that in our mixed group. No one, everyone was quite happy to describe. But Daniel, at this point, said, lame. And the reason he said lame, and I kind of knew, but at the end of the session, we discussed it. And he said, I hated the fact you didn't give me a choice there. I hated the fact that you, that the, the or not you, but the module, okay, because he made it very clear it was the module, even though I felt a bit guilty for not, I should have known, I should have known, because I know Daniel, and I've played with him a lot, and I know that this is exactly the reason he hates Call of Cthulhu, and he hates pre-written adventures. I knew it, but I don't know, I got carried along in the moment, and I wasn't thinking. Um, and what he said was, you didn't give me a choice, and given a choice, my character would have done all that stuff anyway, because she was totally into it. She's a young, upcoming cabaret dancer, very attractive young lady, very um, outre, um, not exactly a, a moral person, had no qualms, was well, it wanted to be part of this Berlin licentious cabaret scene. So she wouldn't have done it. However, one of the other characters said, no way would he have done it. And this was an interesting tension. I think that, as Daniel pointed out in his podcast, this would have made a more interesting resolution in a way if, if, if one of the characters had decided not to do it. But of course, in the module, they assume that given the choice, most people would just kind of stand back and not take part in it. And what it's trying to do is immerse you in this magic and this vice and this horror and this ecstasy. That's what the module is called. Dancers of vice, horror and ecstasy. And, but it's done in this very clumsy way. And we discussed it afterwards, and it wasn't so much that the chance was so low. That wasn't Daniel's objection, because, you know, one of my other players, Henry, said, well, look, if we made the, if made the role easier, would that fix it? And he said, well, no, not really, because he wanted me and the writer of the module to trust him, the player, to, to go all in, to buy into the premise. And that is a really good lesson for me. And I think... This will be very good mindset for me going into the Eldritch Organ improvisational games next week. So, that's that. We're playing again tomorrow on Christmas Day um, uh, with Daniel and with my other friends from New York. We're playing uh, the next session of this quite extraordinary adventure. It, they all loved the setting and the scene and everything. And, and even Daniel said, Daniel's actually said, it's it's a credit to your to your ability as a GM that I want to keep coming back and playing with you, given how much I hate this kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I suppose I should take that for what it is and and not feel too kind of deflated or or, or kind of down downbeat about how things played out. But um, it's a it's a bit of a lesson. So anyway, here's Barney with a very long and detailed kind of di discourse, really, on on how this game's going to work and then and then after that um a couple of great well it's one message split into two uh from barry um uh from uh goblin's henchman and um yeah we um we will return to this subject i am sure i will i will let them um i will let them lead out the show hey andini i've decided to walk to work today so I can record you a bit of a message. I'll try and keep it as short as possible because I'm sure I'll be calling 
in more. Again, we'll be talking more about the dreaded uh, Eldridge organ. Um, that's me struggling here to put my glove on now that I've just hit record. It's a bit nippy here. It's a little bit nippy. So, great discussion in the last episode. Some great things that you raised. The thing I want to focus on here is the kind of naivety, knowledge, opposition, and what type of characters people get to play. Uh, what type of characters we might get to GM. So, a couple of things. I think, so in terms of your desire to define it, we need to define it. I think that's something that GMs can define, that you and I can define, we can choose. And I think one thing that's quite important to stress in all of this is that we're not trying to undermine the role of the GM in all of this improv because it's a great thing it's a great thing it's a great thing to just have someone who steers things a little bit right sets the scene that kind of thing so there's no for my part there's no desire to undermine that at all so if you say, I want to take a group of total, totally naive uh, characters into a deadly situation, a horrific situation, I think that's a great stipulation to have that clarity too, to say this is what, this is what, the, this is what the deal is. And I mean, just to answer a little bit to Joe and to Safer's points about this. Uh, in horror movies, people stumble into the woods precisely because they don't know that there's something terrible going on in there. Oh, come on, come on, it'll be fun. So that happens. And then of course the flip side is that here I am at a crossing the flip side of that is that you have the Van Helsings boldly going where those naive characters would never go if they knew, but they didn't. So, morning, Walter. So, so there's that. So. In all, in all cases, people go into the scary woods, either through ignorance or intent. Right. So then from my side, I might stipulate then that for my game or games, I want, I want Van Helsing's. That's the, that's the deal for my games. And I think what's really valuable about this, about stating which of those two extremes we're playing. I think that is very helpful for everyone. And I think it 
it gets round that problem that Safer talked about, that Joe in a way is talking about, that we talked about, that I think I, I referred to it as the tension between being the victim and the investigator. So th that of course is something, a problem in, if you like, a happy problem in Call of Cthulhu. So by stipulating one extreme or the other, we kind of get away from that mid-ground problem, that mid-ground challenge. And just to dwell on Call of Cthulhu for a minute, um, you can, you know, you can, it's, it's kind of in the middle where you can choose to be an occult investigator or an occultist or whatever. So you have some belief or experience, knowledge of other realms but somehow the Cthulhu mythos is always this bigger, far scarier thing beyond. Now that, I think, I find that slightly problematic. And if you remember the forget-me-not... Uh, God, I forget my character. Um, anyway, he, he had quite a high uh, occult skill level. And I was always asking you, can I roll my occult skill level? Maybe it wasn't that high, I don't know. I seem to remember failing it. You let me roll it once or something. Anyway... There was, this, there was this proven ability on my character sheet, which also speaks to so an aspect of the character who wants to, who, who believes in that kind of thing. And of course it might be law, it might be mythology, whatever we want to call it as well. But you wouldn't invest that much time if you didn't, well, maybe with Anton, maybe, maybe in that case, because he's just, a TV presenter for an, you know, an occult show. Maybe, maybe it is just kind of superficial. You know, it's just academic rather than belief. But you know, in the past, I've rolled up a, I've rolled up a character with a bit of telekinesis and that kind of thing. So it's there, and I, I kind of, I find it a little bit disappointing that the the Cthulhu mythos is something beyond and greater that, that those other occult abilities can't really lend a hand um you know the ancient hebrew angels the descriptions of angels you know they are colossal colossal cosmic very powerful potentially very violent and potentially completely disinterested in humanity, if you like, per se. And now, who's to say that they're not actually some kind of mythos entity or, well, they wouldn't be a deity, would they? They would be entities, absolutely, because they work for the big one. And you find that in all, all cosmic religions too, these giant, wrathful, beings so so that's that's that so I'm kind of saying I think there's possibly a, a value in collapsing collapsing the distinction between general occultism and specifically mythos occultism just going over a bridge here the illa um, 
Now, to to avoid truly collapsing them, I think I think it would be useful to have them as a scale. So, at the one end you've got spoon bending, and at the other end you've got total terrestrial annihilation. And so, so when when we're when we're might be asking our Van Helsings to see if they can keep their shit together. The question is whether they're flipping out over spoon bending or terrestrial annihilation. I'm walking in the cycle path because that's normally how I how I roll. Uh, it's a bit dangerous there. Anyway, no harm done. Okay, the next thing is, and this is also a little bit of Call of Cthulhu type thing here. When the players start, when, when, the characters, when a character starts off naive, they're basically only naive for that one session. Oh, that, sorry, not that, that one venture, that one scenario. Because by the end of it, they would have been exposed to mythos horrors. So, to my mind, the naivety really only exists for that first instance, that first experience, and then the penny has started to drop. So that works perfectly for your one-shots, as we've talked about before, as Safer touches on, I think, or at least what am I thinking there, that you can really lean into having naive characters when it's a when it's a, a one-shot. But still there's that problem of asking them to kind of go along with the penny dropping. So I just, I just come down on the side of they should, they should already, they should already have some awareness of all these things. It's much more interesting to my mind. What's next? What's next? What's next? Naivety. Oh yes, oh yes, Andy. So, so you like to GM weak, uh, naive, clueless characters that you can pummel into the ground. What on earth does that say about you? I mean, you've already said it all before. I think, again, I just come down on the side. I want, I want to give, I want to give the players that chance to to really dig in. And as I said in our in our chat, if the player is more cognizant of the the deep dark hidden eldritch reality then as a GM you just have the chance to crank that up higher and I, th I think this does kind of come down to these questions of player agency and I think it does come down to questions of control um, I think to have a band of Van Helsing's does 
does uh, put some pressure on the GM, but I think it's productive. I think it's productive pressure. It's this kind of. It's this. It's this. Yeah. This. 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 These kind of contesting energies, and that's what you want. That's what you want. If it comes down to no, 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 sorry, uh, you see this thing and uh, you've got no idea what it is, and uh, uh, you're going to go mad. Yeah, it's just, it's just the GM. In my view, that you know, I'm being, I'm, 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 I'm putting, I'm being provocative here, aren't I? In reality, it's never that extreme. I think very rarely. But I think to, to to have to have these characters who, or to have characters who do have an inkling of what's going on. You know, I mean, even those mechanics are in Cthulhu. You know, you don't want you don't want to really become aware of of the horror in front of you but that's precisely that's precisely what I'm saying I would want to lean into for my games um, and again that just that just means that the horror has to be is is so mind-bending you know even for people who are familiar with with the very lightest layers of the mythos you know that to 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 become more and more aware of even greater horrific depths, I think is good fun. So my suggestion then is simply: you go for the naive characters, the scenario with naive characters, and I will play naive. I will do it. I've just just done Rizbiak well, so I'll. Uh, as, as penance for that misdemeanor, I will happily, I will happily play naive. And in my game, okay, this is what the other thing I really wanted to say. You, you like to control, you like, sorry, you like to GM, sorry. You like to GM naive characters. You, Andy, I would like you to be the token naive character in my game. Okay? I think that's gonna be a lot of fun. Let's see, let's see how you like being a naive character as a player. Gauntlet down. Hi Barney, hi Andy. I just got finished listening to Andy's episode 321, was it? And uh, three, the, the following on one, um, three, two, two, is it? Well, that would make sense. Anyway, um, I thought it was an interesting discussion. Um, and I, uh, I've just come out of Tesco, so I think I've got a little bit left to go on it, but uh, I'm going to record this before I set off and then, then finish the episode. But yeah, I mean, it was interesting hearing Abani talk about, um, and I hope, uh, you know, I hope you guys didn't have your, your tongue too firmly in your cheek when you're talking about this, that. Uh, Andy, Andy is uh, less improvisational in terms of the setup than Barney uh, would um, would maybe perhaps like him to be, um, but 
you know, I've I've listened to some of those uh, um, actual plays, and obviously um, Andy's not lacking in improv skills, but it sounds like he likes a nice framework to start with. Anyway, um, I also know Andy doesn't really like fantasy; it's not really his jam, and that's perfectly valid. But what I was trying to, what I was going to say is that um, I recently ran one of my my Carapace Hexflower games, um, and that was completely improvisational in in the sense that. Uh, I I knew how the game worked and I knew the background but all the encounters and all the interactions were generated using hex files and random tables so the idea is that the DM is in charge of encounters and and some of the sort of more bits that are meant to be you know surprised but the players are much more involved in generating the texture the rooms that sort of thing and it works both ways in the sense that the DM gets some surprises you get a bit of interaction and also it frees the DM's brain up to worry about the, the gnarly bit rather than having to generate everything. Um, but it gives the players some creative freedom. And the idea is it's, it's not just meant to be arbitrary. Yeah, room is hard. It's meant to be, you know, tying it into a narrative. So it is improvisational, improvisational both ways. Um, I'm sure Barney, if he was let loose, in, it would, be, it would cause all sorts of havoc with that. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so I'm trying to say... I'm trying to, maybe, maybe I need to write a... Uh, a a Cthulhu version with a hex flower in it. Not, the problem is not really my jam, so I, I find it difficult throwing my brain into that. Although actually, now, now that I think about it, I think Barney did. We did. I did once talk to Barney about using hex flower for his uh, hammer horror thing um, that he was cooking up a while ago. But maybe, maybe we never. Maybe that never really got settled. Anyway, all I'm saying is, if you're ever interested in uh, trying a completely improvisational version, then these hex flowers can can do that. But anyway, the the other thing. But mainly interested me about the talk was this idea of an evolving narrative. Can you have a mystery game that, that generates itself um, potentially as it goes on? And unfortunately, recently my computer died. I had a lot of files on the desktop which I haven't managed to recover yet. But um, in that, I was kind of working on a system neutral setting which was meant to be like sort of kids on bikes kind of thing, um, 70s in a, in a Pacific island. Um, uh, with sort of, uh, sort of, yeah. Anyway, and I was trying to work out a way of of generating uh, an interesting setup where you had all the pieces in place, locations, personalities, and various plots, and then having them linked together in a way which was uh, random but still made, still could potentially make sense. And the idea basically was something along the lines of. Uh, it's sort of thing I've, I've lent into before, but the idea of using the, the battleship grid, you know, that game battleships, ABC along the ABC to J on the top and one to ten down the side, or, or the other way around. But the idea is that you have um, like personalities down one side and uh, locations down the other, and you also got white pegs and red pegs, which could be threats or just uh, how is this going to work? Threats, reds, red. You know, you you're meant to have a certain number of each, and then you mix them up and drop them in as you go along, and how they tie together. I mean, I, I basically have a. I did did do this thing once, which was a called a battleship's dungeon, where you can actually make a two-dimensional dungeon using just pegs on a on a on a on a battleship's grid. And the idea is you could do the same thing, but linking networks. Anyway, the the idea I was wondering about is could you use this idea where you had characters along the top and say say you say the first five are the PCs and then the other five are, are NPCs or or just all NPCs or 
seven NPCs and three random characters at random, just pick three out that could be involved. And then you have various plot links down the side or locations. And again, you could have red and white pegs to symbolize different levels of whether they're threats or just, what was the white? I can't remember whether white was just, just there rather than the threat. I thought that's a little bit more of nuance there. And you could have people being more than one thing. Um, anyway, I guess with that thing lost, it's always very hard to remember how it was going to work out. But anyway, I did wonder whether you could create a game where, <clears throat> during the session... Sorry, I got cut off there. <laughs> Someone rang me halfway through my uh, diatribe. But uh, it did give me a moment to think about um, what what I was said before. But I think, I think in my, my original version, I think I had one grid for people in locations and another grid for the, the same people and whether they're threats or not, or something like that. Anyway, getting back to what I was trying to say before... Um, before I got a call was that it'd be really interesting to say whether you could play a game that every time you got to a trigger point let's go to the the manor or let's go to the barn or wherever you are um, you then somehow then generate the new data point and you know that's the clue <coughs> I mean I guess to get things going you might need to do the first five so that you could randomly generate the initial scenario who's murdered who's uh, it'd be unfortunate. It couldn't be a PC in that case. Who's murdered? Where was it? Uh, who was the witness? Uh, who's who? Who's holding information? Who's 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 the who's the accomplice? Maybe not even who's the murderer. So with that sort of five data points, you then begin the investigation, and then when they then go to the next point uh, in the thing, you can generate the next data set, and you know in that way the DM doesn't know either, but it will come out. Um, and it's up to the DM and the players to improvise how that works. Um, I hope this is not all too... It, well, it is. It is all jumbled up and uh, not really thought through completely. But I think I think there must be a way of doing it. Um, I think the, the game I was thinking about, I was planning to plan it all out. So it was all set. But I much, much prefer this idea of maybe generating the ten personalities and the, and the ten different locations, or what the locations would be, and then do the five setup pieces, and then each time you continue, you have a handful of, you know, maybe you've got five, you know, a total of um, three quarters white and one quarter red pegs, and you just keep drawing for the bag, and whether you generate the next location or the next person each time randomly, um, and that's that's the next data point, and you've got a you've got to roll with it. Why why suddenly is you know. You know, and whether you have each data point to be a progression in the story, an escalation, or whether they're just completely random events, like suddenly, you know, old man Finnegan's got got bloody clothes in his bin, you know, that's the clue. Or whether it's, you know, the next step is X, Y, and Z. Someone, you know, you've got a plot line of ten events that will happen, escalating to the climax. Anyway, like I say, this is all straight from the straight from the hip shooting so maybe it doesn't make sense um, but I think the idea anyway your discussion really interests me this idea of and it has interested me before when I've listened to Joe Richter talk this idea of can you have a narrative can you have a uh, a procedural procedural um, mystery adventure um, I think you you need a plot or, I mean I just wonder instead of having a complete random plot it's just how the plot comes out in which order rather than placing the pieces the pieces unfold um, you know Cluedo is a classic example isn't it 
there's pieces, there's suspects, and someone ends up being the, the, the bad guy, but no one really knows until the end. Um, is that satisfying? I think it could be. I think, especially for the DM, ah, how do we make this, how do we make it make sense? Why is, you know, the, 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 why did the vicar do it based on all the current evidence? I mean, it's like these Agatha Christie novels, certainly on TV, I'm sure the novels are better, but, you know, each person could have done it, and then they go, aha, it was the, it was Barry, he did it, because of all these clues, and it seems to me that anyone, you could have gone, aha, it was anyone, and you just have to say, oh, it doesn't feel satisfactory that you've solved the mystery, um, because any, you know, the, 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 I didn't find that any of the clues really ruled out anyone else, it was just like, finally picking it, so there could be an element of that, but I don't know, I, I do think, as long as players in the DM are improving off that information, I think it could work. Anyway, I'm probably probably writing myself a problem, but um, I'll leave, I'm going to send you the message. I'll send it to Barney, email it to Barney. Hopefully I can find your email address, Andy. I'm sure it's out there, but if not, maybe Barney would have the courtesy of forwarding it on. All right, thank you for the discussion. It was interesting. Bye. Of course, um, Goblin's henchman isn't called Barry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you said Barry, so it just planted Barry. Barry is Shadow of the GM. Do I know Goblin's name? Are you just henchman? GH. I'm so sorry. It's a game we're role-playing. I'm a stranger and you're making mistakes. I Smell your 